most of the industry is extremely old school, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. one of the oldest industry. So, um, yeah, there's a huge opportunity to just get uh, significant advantages by using technology, uh, latest data, uh, and, and kind of coming in with like a hybrid mind where you're like, uh, you're excited about food, but you're also excited about technology and, and sure. Uh, sure. using that. Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs, guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right, my guest today is Jonathan Wines, the co-founder of Pop Meals. For those of you who don't know, Pop Meals is an F&B company leveraging tech and data to enable tailored experiences with better quality and lower prices. Thank you very much for being here, John. I'm very excited for our chat. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So I, I, I want to know the origin story. So you were the first company out of Malaysia to get into YC. Take me back to the earliest days in regards to how you became an entrepreneur, what that early experience was like, and how you landed on the current concept. Yeah, actually, the story goes even further back. because um, So kind of, I guess, the first touch with entrepreneurship I had actually while um, studying on exchange in Hong Kong. So originally, I'm from Germany, did a student exchange in Hong Kong. During that time, participated in like a entrepreneurship class and uh, was kind of like pre-lean startup methodology, etc. So I learned a lot of, you know, these things, you write like a long business plan and all of these things that you you might not want to do necessarily. But um, I met one of my co-founders during that time. And um, I think for us, we bounced off a lot of different ideas, um, startup ideas initially. Um, nothing tough came out of that. Um, but then eventually um, I got the chance actually to, to roll out one of the largest uh, food delivery marketplaces here in the region. So for the Hong Kong market. And that really brought uh, me into the, the food industry. Right. So, um, uh, and I started also working together now with our uh, second co-founder. So two of us um, rolled out this marketplace. Uh, I signed up hundreds of restaurants. Um, quickly understood, um, you know, how big, uh, the demand is for convenient, affordable, uh, delicious food in, in Asia and in Southeast Asia, right? And at the same time, also to see kind of firsthand how low or even no tech the F&B industry is. Um, yeah, and for me, always like has what has been always fascinating is kind of the use of data, right? How do we bring, you know, all of this feedback that customers have, how can we turn that into better products, right? And uh, if you look at the traditional F&B industry, it's essentially, yeah, you have customers who love, you know, talk about food all day long, right? They, they have so many ideas, what makes uh, a dish more, more tasty, et cetera, right? But mm -hmm. then uh, typically the chef lacks kind of this, this data and there's no information flow. And that's was one of the big inspiration for, um, you know, this, the business that we then uh, launched, um, to, to really change that, um, and to just, uh, yeah, use technology to make a much more relevant, much more exciting product for customers and then also, 
will uh, reduce a lot of the inefficiencies uh, and, and waste, frankly, that you have in FMB to just pass on more value to, uh, to consumers. Okay. Okay. So, 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 so tell me when you, when you're, when you're getting, when you're getting started, I mean, that's, it, it was kind of a bit, it was quite a big deal at the time, you know, being the first Malaysian based company, uh, getting into YC. Um, tell me about that process in regard, in regards to, was that, was that kind of the ambition to begin with? Did somebody kind of push you in that direction or what, what led you to try and pursue that pathway in the first place? Yeah, so in terms of YC specifically, I think that was uh, yeah, it was very, it's quite funny because we were not sure if it made sense for us uh, at the beginning to join um, mm -hmm. Y Combinator because obviously, I mean, it's, uh, I guess one of the most um, known um, uh, accelerators, but uh, like very Silicon Valley based, right? Yeah. So we were not too sure, hey, we are here based in Malaysia and Southeast Asia. Um, how much can we really benefit from that? Mm -hmm. So we were a bit hesitant, but then uh, yeah, one of, um, yeah, one uh, now founder of a unicorn actually he really pushed us during that time and said like hey you guys should really really apply and um it's super useful and then we went through the process um and yeah it was multi-stage process right first like um uh, you have to kind of do like a, a video introduce the company introduce the co-founders um and then multiple kind of video interviews and you fly there and meet the partners there and go there through the selection process and then uh, yeah Luckily, we got got through all of that, and uh, I think looking back was definitely one of the yeah best choices we made. And yeah, yeah, and it, it was in the days of the physical cohorts as well. So you act, you actually relocated for a bit of time to San Francisco, yeah. Exactly. That was also where initially we we're not super sure if that makes sense, right? Because you kind of you have your operation business here. You um, at the beginning we were like heavily involved in the operations. I mean, mm -hmm. a part of us were even like you know supervising the cooking <laughs> sure. of the meals. So. The kind of uh, so I was the lucky one out of the three of us to to you know spend time in in, in the Bay Area and uh, yeah absolutely amazing experience. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a vibe of when you're there that you kind of absorb a lot of knowledge from the networking events, simply going to the coffee shop and striking up a chat with somebody. There's there's definitely a characteristic of. At some point, a lot of founders ought to take a pilgrimage, let's call it, <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and spend a little bit of time there, yeah? Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you come back after the program, you're building it up, you know, at some point, you end up taking a, taking a big pivot. Can you, what, can you tell me a little bit about the story of what led to that? And I'm assuming there's there's a bunch of learnings that you developed from it as you kind of shifted forward and maybe even some scar tissue as well. So uh, hopefully we don't get too sensitive here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's been a yeah, very, very, very interesting journey. And um, um, definitely, I think the so so the previous model, just to give a bit more context, right, so was a, a vertically integrated food delivery model where as a customer, you could just order online and we would deliver them from uh, I mean, now it's called dark kitchens or cloud kitchens. During that time, there wasn't even really a term. So kind of sure. uh, essentially pioneering that model. Um, yeah, we grew very fast um, and kind of also saw the unit economics working out relatively well. However, what we noticed, the, the more we grew, we kind of, uh, uh, you continuously had to spend money on marketing to acquire customers because it is um, more challenging to build a very strong consumer brand purely online than if you have this physical connection where the customer can actually see the brand, experience the yeah. brand, right? Um, and I think that's that's also a, um, a learning that has been shared by many of the D2C brands uh, all over the world, right? If you think the 
Wobby Parker or Casper or um, yeah, there's so many examples of that. Yeah, a lot of them set up physical locations now. Yeah, because it's I, extremely powerful, right, for the customer yeah. to come into like a location, see like a staff smiling and uh, you know kind of yeah, translating yeah. that brand. Um, yeah, we had local startup Sono, which is uh, similar to Casper here in Malaysia, doing similar sort of physical location omni-channel. Let's call it now. Yeah, I actually have a blank from them so uh, great product <laughs> shout out to them <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah and so so i think what was very interesting so when then the pandemic hit um in uh, 2020 um actually kind of contrary to, to what many people expected our uh, business was significantly impacted right i mean during that time everybody saw kind of food delivery rising however our prior business was heavily focused on on kind of the office lunch crowd yeah with a lot mm -hmm. of Essentially, most most of the orders came from corporates or at least office locations. Yeah. Uh, so now, when your customers are not anymore at the you know in the office where they normally order, that uh, meant uh, you know revenues were significantly impacted. Mm -hmm. um, I think yeah, retrospectively, definitely kind of a blessing in disguise because it allowed us to kind of relook at the business model and uh, especially the distribution channel, um, and kind of ask ourselves how. Can we implement all of the learnings that we had over the last couple of years to just significantly improve on this um, business model? And yeah, I mean, uh, that has has uh, been yeah, very successful and allowed us to to now grow much faster and especially much more profitable. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember in those days, I, I was I was a subscriber where you had some sort of like prepay for a certain amount of uh, meals, and you end up getting it slightly discounted all of that but around that same time there were a number of like copycats that ended up start mm -hmm. popping up and from the packaging on down a lot of it was quite similar did that did that also play a role as far as like establishing the brand and the relationship with the consumer where the switching costs and and the brand value was was difficult to establish no i think that there was fine in, in fact we i would say we were extremely Good at building a very strong brand where people mm -hmm. um, had a you know a lot of people knew us and had a very good understanding what the brand stands for. At the same time, also we realized as kind of founders, right, we wanted to really use technology and data to have a big impact on on the wide population, right, to make just uh, you know the average person's uh, life a bit better through the power of food, right. Mm -hmm. um, but when we looked at our consumer, our customer group, we realized, um, yeah, we were like really serving. Um, you know, the top 10%, top 1% uh, income bracket, which was not fully aligned with what we kind of wanted to do as founders. And um, yeah, and then speaking to customers, we realized also a lot of customers were actually, they knew the brand, but they hadn't even tried us because they had this preconceived notion about that the brand is very premium, um, probably very expensive. The food is very healthy and more like bland. So like mm. a lot of, um, yeah, ideas in the customer's mind that we were able to create through marketing which in the end kind of hurt us uh, to to go into a much broader market. So therefore, then uh, we completely also changed the brand, um, right? Overnight, essentially rebranded to uh, to a much more approachable um, uh, brand identity. Changed the name, changed the colors um, for more like a you know white, black, green premium to now like much more you know yellow, much more friendly. Um, yeah, brand much design. more vibrant kind of. Uh, I, it does kind of pop. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> I, th I think it's appropriately named yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and, and uh, of course also we in terms of the pricing right completely change the price point to really be able to uh you know use of the technology assets that we had already built to just you know serve meals at much more affordable prices and with that then we really serve like the 
uh, you know, the mid-income consumer, even, you know, upper, lower sure. uh, uh, segments. Um, yeah, again, which was much more aligned in terms of the vision and also obviously uh, significantly opens up the possibilities, right? Sure, sure. So let, let's talk about the aspect of going physical, because there's a lot of additional operational aspects that come when you're when you're managing physical locations. From the previ- prior to launch of site selection, all of these sort of aspects down to having on, uh, on-site employees. When you were getting ready to make this pivot and looking at going into the physical locations, how did you guys go about analyzing to make sure that like when you started doing step one, step two, that you knew what you were doing? What was the, what was that early part of the process uh, logically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it was extremely experimental and um, kind of, um, yeah, essentially taking like the, you know, the lean startup methodology um, uh, where you kind of set up an MVP in a sense, right? And kind of take that to uh, approach that evolution of the business. Um, so the, the the first indicator that this made sense, we actually had even um, you know pre-pandemic and pre-kind of pivot, because we we did a lot of like offline marketing where kind of you know we distributed, uh, we sold like meals in in office lobbies, and we were always surprised how much reception, positive reception we got from that, and that kind of gave us an idea that okay, if you if you're there when the customer has the problem that you're solving, right, you you have the food ready when they're hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes sense and it's uh, it's it removes a lot of friction right so that was the, kind of the first indicator and then we said like okay let's take this uh, a step further let's set up our first um uh, uh, omnichannel uh, physical presence right and that was actually right in the middle of the pandemic where you know everybody was like completely moving away from that sure. move to delivery and, and people kind of thought we were like a bit crazy in a sense um but you know we we, we yeah we were betting on that eventually the pandemic would um, would ease up and uh, and this uh, would work out, right? So, so yeah, first, um, yeah, very, very, very quick process, uh, essentially building like the first location, like a MVP, it lo- also looks completely different now than uh, any of our new, uh, so we call them these locations, smart outlets. So mm-hmm. uh, the first smart outlet looks completely different in terms of design, et cetera, from, from the uh, latest location, simply because of all the learnings um, in the operation, uh, in terms of the customer experience, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and okay. in terms of uh, obviously a lot of learnings around um, uh, the site location, et cetera, I think generally um, the, the interesting bit is to be in the F&B industry is that, uh, again, most most of the industry is extremely old school, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. one of the oldest industry. So, um, yeah, there's a huge opportunity to just get uh, significant advantages by using technology, uh, latest data, uh, and and kind of coming in with like a hybrid mind where you're like uh, you're excited about food, but you're also excited about technology and, and sure. Uh, sure. using that. You you referenced earlier in 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 this in this conversation about that when the when the when the patron of a restaurant is orders food and has their own thoughts on what could make it more tasty is it, is it spicy enough all of those sort of things is is that the type of data that you're talking about or what what's the extent walk walk me through the extent of what data you think is currently not captured in fnb and how you guys are kind of leveraging that yeah i think generally i mean um it's the opportunity goes way beyond data across like various parts of technology when we speak specifically about data then for sure it's it's around you know just building the best possible 
um, recipes, right? Designing the best possible recipes by continuously collecting customer feedback data and kind of iteratively developing a recipe, mm -hmm. which uh, is very different what, from what has been traditionally done. And normally what happens is uh, just, I mean, there are different pathways, but like either, you know, you have like some kind of famous recipe, maybe the grandma has some recipe and then, you know, they, they start uh, like a restaurant starts based on that or you uh, a restaurateur uh, hires like an outside consultant who develops a menu. Um, in, in both of these instances, it's kind of, you have the products, right? The recipe, and then you leave it like that. And it's very stagnant, it doesn't change. Yeah? Hence, most restaurants never change the menu or maybe after mm -hmm. like a, a year or two years, right? Um, for us as founders, right, we come, um, especially my co-founder, obviously completely from, from a software development point of view where you, yeah, that's not how you develop software, right? How you develop software by continuously looking at metrics, continuously speaking to users and mm -hmm. iteratively improving, um, you know, every single part of it, every feature, right? And so we kind of took that mindset and applied, um, to food, um, which is on one hand, you need this type of mindset. On the other hand, obviously you need the access to the, the type of data to be able to do that, right? And that's, that's kind of where we focus a lot in terms of um, building out the apps, optimizing kind of the, the ability for customers to give feedback um, that we can get all of that data. And um, and the last piece to that is really important is in terms of we also need the supply chain to be able to um, to actually use that data and make changes to recipes. Uh, even if you look at the $200 billion company, uh, McDonald's, or like any of the other billion dollar companies, right? They typically have like extremely um, stiff supply chain, which are almost designed to avoid product innovation because typically they work with franchisees as a franchise, uh, franchise owner, you don't want your franchisees to to make a lot of changes, etc. Right. 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 So, after the the legacy structure, essentially almost prohibit product innovation by by design, right? And that's that's again something where you need to you need to completely approach that differently, build a, a very differentiated supply chain and uh, value chain. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So how do you, how do you see this sort of editor of approach uh, towards the recipes and and all of that? with kind of the 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 brand aspect of consistency reliability i think if you look at some of those established fnb fast food chains like mcdonald's like you referenced no matter where in the world you go you generally speaking the like the menu that's consistent the taste is consistent all of all of that there's they kind of built it in like they don't want any change for like the last i don't even know how many years um but there's there's an experience value to where you know what you're what you're getting. How do you kind of view that from 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 that perspective in being able to continually entice and attract uh, kind of the loyal uh, uh, person? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's like uh, kind of you have to find a balance because there's inherently like a, a bit of a tension, right? Uh, on one hand, people are excited about the you know the most delicious taste and they're excited about new things. But um, they also want to, uh, you know, to to know a bit what the brand stands for and what the offering is like, right? So therefore, the finding that balance is um, is very important. So for us, that means um, we uh, we continuously, especially I guess right now, the most of the effort is on just making the existing recipes uh, better through and where we can then look through the data to to really achieve that. Um, and in terms of new product launches, um, that's that's something where yeah, which allows us to drive customers uh, and then kind of you know keep them coming back more frequent than than what you would normally do in a uh, in the traditional industry, right? But it's it's um, yeah, it's, it's I think something 
quite interesting, which also we we always mindful to balance that. Because uh, yeah, again, you don't want next week like completely the menu is completely different, and you sure. as a consumer you love the product. Next week it's it's not there anymore, or uh, or it completely tastes different, right? So right, right. So yeah. So let me ask you on the on the supply chain aspect because that's a, that's a, that's a big thing when you're when you're looking at flexibility versus the rigidity aspect of it, uh, because there's a component of quality control of the inputs. You know, I think most of those places that do like French fries or whatever, they're very particular on what type of potato and all of these sort of things. When you look at scaling the model and maintaining flexibility, how is your viewpoint on managing the supply chain from the quality control aspect? And do you manage end to end or are there third parties that you're leveraging in order to accommodate that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The consistency, um, yeah, it's extremely important, right? Especially when we, um, when we collect data, et cetera, because otherwise the data collection is pointless, right? If, if the recipes change without, I mean, you intentionally making changes to the recipe, mm-hmm. um, then, uh, yeah, then there's no point kind of collecting any feedback, right? So, um, so that's super important in terms of, um, yeah, s- scalability. I think it's, it's all about like the, the operating system and the supply chain that you build in order to, to, um, yeah, to both, to do essentially do both, right? You need to, the ability to capture the economies of scale so that you can provide a lot of value to consumers, but at the same time, you also need the, uh, the ability to make changes uh, uh, quickly and launch new products quickly, right? So I think for us, we um, we, are, we have been quite interested, kind of in how Shein, for instance, built their supply, supply chain, right? So mm-hmm. the, the fast, or uh, I think by now it's called even a, a real real time fashion company, right? Yep. Um, so they have uh, exactly kind of achieved that as well, where you combine economies of of scale with the um yeah the, the ability to iteratively make changes rapidly right in small batches mm-hmm. okay okay and when you when you talk about the product offering and introducing new products is is there an aspect of sunsetting some uh bringing on new ones or how do you consider kind of the formulation of making sure that the menu of options don't get too big uh so that you can zero in and make sure that you're controlling kind of supply costs and and all of that yeah, yeah, we are pretty radical at this at this point, right? We <laughs> any product that is um, where you know we 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 don't see that the customer um, satisfaction is at the at a pretty high level. So we measure that in certain uh, metrics, mm. um, and so the bar is quite high to make it essentially onto the menu and, and as an item to uh, stay on the menu. Um, and the same, of course, in terms of popularity. So the moment, um, yeah, if if something doesn't you know cont- contribute say less than one percent of uh, of sales to the menu, then uh, we quickly also take it off, right? Uh, obviously, there are different variances to that. Yeah, so if, if something is popular but the ratings are not good, that uh, typically means we look in more and more into the data. Okay, how can we make the recipe better? Because it, it tells us uh, the item is relevant, customer wanted, but they mm-hmm. just don't like how it's currently uh, prepared, right? Um, so normally that should allow us then to uh, to optimize the ratings so that we have then really like a, a high-performing item both in terms of popularity and the, the rating obviously if you have something which is quite interesting we had this before yeah super high rated yeah but just not you know, almost no one buys it right uh, then then that, that hurts a bit because you you obviously you know you have like something really amazing but if no one cares about it then yeah that, that's that's a shame but then we have to kick it off it right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so okay. currently we're pretty radical to really um make sure um to keep the offering 
yeah, very, very focused in terms of relevancy and um, okay. ratings. So and so let, let's let, let, let me dig into this on the on the ratings and and adjusting the menu and the recipes. So when you talk about scaling and you get a larger and larger geographical footprint, you start having a lot of variety of consumer preferences that come into play as well, because the the broader you start stretching, there's different tastes in regards to level of saltiness, spiciness, the list goes on and on. How do you manage that? Because, you know, from a recipe standpoint, what's perfectly fine for, for one person, when you go into another territory, may end up not fitting. So do you adjust the recipes as well for geography or is it more on the aggregate? Yeah, I think that's actually the most uh, upcoming exciting opportunity for us because <laughs> Southeast Asia um, is so diverse, right? Uh, exactly yeah. what you're saying, like even within a single country, between region, you have uh, significant differences in taste right. preferences and other preferences, right? Um, the type of data that we are able to collect allows us to actually, you know, serve serve to uh, serve these customers with a with a, a more optimized product for that. And um, yeah, I think it's quite interesting to see if you look at Southeast Asia, any of the you know large um, like the big success stories in food have a significant element of localization in it. Uh, yeah, you can go through the whole roster of the big international chains. They have several uh, significantly localized um, the, the product offering and even the taste for different countries. Yeah, I sure. think the type of data that we were able to collect uh, will allow us to, to take this come to the next level, yeah? not just different offerings by country, but eventually even by region, um, by cities, um, and you know maybe even eventually by, by neighborhoods, right? To really okay. yeah, cater yeah, to the local uh, hyper local taste preferences. Okay, okay. So when when you kind of envision that from that localization, depending upon how how granular it ends up getting, if it really gets down to the hyper localization, when you start kind of envisioning that my you know my mind starts thinking about ah wow if there's a, if there's a lot of variability or customization how do you control costs in regards to the supply chain because there's volume discounts and all of that that it behooves a person to try and stick to as much of a confined sort of variability how do you envision that um or am i just thinking of it wrong from that standpoint yeah i think the the important bit in this space is really around the the more the, in terms of the, the operation cost, um, especially like the in terms of the food preparation, mm. a little bit less so in terms of the food ingredients. Because in in terms of purchasing, definitely there are uh, economies in um, in procurement, right? Mm -hmm. Economies of scale, but they are also uh, yeah relative, relatively less important than what you can get through in terms of in the food preparation. Yeah? So if if you uh, say if you go to like a, a couple of orders of magnitude higher volumes in terms of uh, for like certain ingredients that you purchase, you might maybe save five percent, six, seven percent. So it's kind of that range, um, yeah. Which hence also typically, I mean, uh, yeah, even the largest scaled up food companies, uh, you know, maybe the offering is a little bit more attractive, but it typically doesn't mean you know they they have like a monopoly and uh, can can undercut everyone uh, uh, everyone else, right? So I think that's that. Um, is one aspect. So what we really focus on in terms of just the food preparation that we built like a, a, a very advanced system that allows us um, to, you know, to ensure consistency, 
uh, again, the ability to to launch new items quickly, also serve serve food very very uh, at a at a fast uh, preparation uh, speed, etc. So we use a lot of automation, a lot of tech guidance uh, in the kitchens to to uh, yeah empower their, our our crew members. Okay. Okay. So when when you when you do do that, so that that's a, that's a big chunk of the cost and all of that that goes in. When you manage that, is it? Do you do you go off of like the made fresh at a location, or do you centralize a large portion of the preparation and then it's kind of a heat and serve sort of model? Where do you kind of fit in on that spectrum? Yeah, it's a um, it's a very important question, right? Because. Um, there are a lot of elements you need to balance and mm. um, a lot of questions with, with, uh, if you centralize or can't be centralized a lot of the, the uh, cooking process and there are like different steps, right? Sure. Um, so for us, we, yeah, it's, it's really taking a lot of the different constraints that we have in the system and, and finding that the right balance while obviously the, um, yeah, the number one kind of North Star metric that we have in the company is really the, the food ratings, right? Uh, how our customers rate the food after they, uh, they uh, ordered it, um, so that's that's yeah the most important metric. So we would um, uh, where we look at in every single step of the preparation, how can we optimize for that? Um, yeah, again, giving all of the other constraints. So it's definitely yeah, and I think that's also why a system is so important. Um, you, know, uh, you you don't want to rely on uh, you know one uh, on on one chef to to have a good day or a bad day uh, which then determines how the food tastes right that's definitely yeah. what you don't want to do especially not at scale <laughs> how much when you when you talk about the chef side of it because there there's there's an aspect of when you do de if you do decentralize a lot or how which either way on the model um there is there is a component on kind of ensuring the the training of that chef and all of those different characteristics some people try and automate it by basically creating like the factory model as if it's no different as like a car manufacturer. It's boom, boom, boom. Everybody does a specialized step, that sort of thing. How do you view that in incorporating automations and process flows? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very big, big topic, right? <laughs> so it's, it's really comes down to all of the, the specific ingredients and components of, uh, of a meal, right? Um, again, we, we want to make the food very affordable, right? So we need to consider the efficiencies from, uh, uh, you know, if you cook at a larger scale, but at the same time, again, it's all optimizing for, for the taste, right? And um, I think what I often see in the food space, you know, people like, uh, uh, yeah, if you, if you go to kind of large scale food manufacturer, then uh, the taste is obviously uh, always like heavily compromised. If you think about your, your average caterer or, yeah, or any food manufactured food manufactured meal, right? So, so it's um, so what we focus on is is having indeed like a, an element of specialization for the food preparation, mm -hmm. um, and again using a lot of uh, tech guidance and uh, also automation cooking to just uh, eliminate uh, inconsistency and and kind of the yeah the, the kind of the human error that that you would not naturally uh, otherwise get. Okay. Okay. Now, tell, tell me a little bit about your geographic footprint. How, how many locations do you have and how far apart are they spread out at this point? Yeah, so we just uh, have now uh, launched our 40th location. And um, so starting from the first one in, uh, what was it, 2020 in December, right? So, so okay. uh, I have, have grown very fast. We have another, um, yeah, more than 30 location uh, in the pipeline right now that we're looking to, to open uh, over the next 
nine months, nine to twelve months. Mm -hmm. I'm currently really focused um, still on central Malaysia, so more than seven cities, four different states, um, but slowly making our way also more uh, to the south and then also the especially east coast. Um, and then after that, um, yeah, also um, looking at other countries uh, across uh, Southeast Asia. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think that that will keep us very busy. I think generally, right, what what we kind of want to drive is really this 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 change um, uh, in terms of the product development in mm -hmm. the entire F and B space, where we believe this will be relevant uh, around the globe. Any market where you have a high share of uh, out of home prepared meals will be interesting for us. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I assume when you're opening more of these locations, the same the same conversation that we had on the centralized versus decentralized, the supply chain of getting inputs into locations, all of that becomes a much more relevant uh, conversation to be having. Uh, maybe when you're in a geographic concentration of of central Malaysia, it's it's perfectly fine. But as you start moving north and south or international, it it adds some layers of complexity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, again, I think this um, technology plays a huge part in that because it um, it just allows you to to yeah to optimize so many processes. Um, mm. yeah, even if it if it comes down to things like you know how you how your inventory works, how you shift uh, ingredients around, etc. That's uh, um, I think many of us who come from like the from the tech industry right think. Uh, this is like a given that this is all automated. And the reality mm -hmm. is actually, if you even if you look at the largest convenience stores chains in um, in Malaysia, for instance, uh, uh, in most of these guys, they still have like the store manager deciding, uh, you know, about the inventory, how much they should order from the supplier. Which, you know, sometimes if you go in into a convenience store, you see like overstocking or, or mm -hmm. you know, the like very basic products are not available, right? So, so that's really the reality where, um, yeah, again, technology can. Uh, can allow you to uh, to avoid all of that, right? So that's that's what we haven't built on uh, in terms of scaling and expanding geographically. Okay, and you and you look at trying to build a lot of that in advance of scaling. So you're kind of looking ahead and saying, okay, what systems, what data do we need to collect so that we can optimize prior to launching, and then continue to optimize as you get the learnings from post-launch. Yeah. Yeah. So the the basic systems we have essentially already built because even at the current scale. Um, Right, like running essentially 40 location is, if you don't have a system, is extremely challenging, right? Um, so we already had, in a sense, we had to build that. Mm. Um, and this will also be, so for instance, the in inventory management system or the logistics system can then be easily extended. Um, yeah, of course, when it comes to completely new geographies, there, there's additional learning steps we have to do in terms of um, the, I mean, the location selection somewhat because at the end of the day, it's it still will be similar data points that we just have to collect. Um, there will be some fine tuning required probably, right? If we go into completely different countries. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then like some basic parts about the supply chain um, that we would have to add. Yeah, okay. Right. When you talk when you talk about being data oriented and capturing a lot of this, whether whether it's the ratings from from customers on the recipes, whether it's the performance of individual uh, menu items at a particular location or overall on the aggregate, when you're looking at the performance of the company as a whole, footfall in a in a restaurant, all of these different data points, did you have to build the capabilities in house to have your own like internal ERP system in order to capture, analyze? And de de develop insights from, or is there something? Was there something available in the market that you then customized further? 
Yeah, I think I would say we have done both. Um, so typically, and I'm very great, grateful for my co-founder, right? So that, um, so I think uh, our tech team has there the mindset that if something is available off the shelf, right, we start with that and then we just continuously see, okay, can we get additional um, efficiencies, uh, savings, uh, or better customer experience by kind of uh, rebuilding uh, that that tool, right, um, mm -hmm. and integrating deeper into our system. And that has meant, um, yeah, across the entire supply chain, essentially, we have completely rebuilt systems, uh, like, um, for instance, logistics system in terms of last mile delivery. We have built our in-house in routing algorithm. Um, completely from scratch and build us to a very sophisticated level. Um, inventory management, I already mentioned, right? So um, we've built in-house, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there are certain tools, for instance, that we where we just stick with the off-the-shelf stuff. When for instance, it comes to customer analytics, right? We don't want to completely rebuild uh, kind of mobile analytics uh, for our mobile apps. That that would be that wouldn't make much sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, data warehouse, for instance, uh, we use uh, an existing. Um, uh, open source tool for that actually uh, and some parts of the ERP also we, we um, use another um, uh, existing off-the-shelf item for that um, yeah so it's, it's always kind of the question right um, how do you spend your engineering resources and mm -hmm. uh, I think yeah I think it's, uh, it's been always quite interesting to, to, to continuously evolve the system um, and it's it's a it's a it's a constantly moving target, I, I assume, because as you continue to expand, you're encountering new challenges from the data collection process and all of that. So it's it's it keeps your tech team and your co-founder quite busy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, but yeah, it's obviously fantastic um, to have a very strong in-house tech team because it's um, you, you see this with like things like uh, ERP implementation, right? So for mm -hmm. instance, we we build, we we're using an um, open source ERP tool. Where uh, if you go one with one of the, the very big brand names, you would have easily spent 100, 200,000 US dollars uh, oh, in yeah. implementation. And every time you want to make a small change, uh, uh, you know, implement a new feature, you have to call the consultant and they charge you again like 10k or something. Right. So, so yeah. these kind of things. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, that's I mean, fantastic to have have the the ability to to build this all in house, sure. right? Sure, and sure. Save all of that money. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Uh, so so we you, we we talked about the intent of expanding north, south, east coast, uh, potentially internationally. When when you when you look at it as an organization, like what what's next on the frontier? What gets you excited? Uh, that's either currently in the pipeline, or um or that's 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 uh, kind of like a uh, an anticipated one that's going to be coming soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are many <laughs> many exciting parts. So, I mean, for for sure, just the, the continuous expansion. Um, because I think the last twenty four months we have really focused on building uh, all of the important parts to have in our system where we can scale fairly easy and just keep on aggressively rolling out, right? Uh, in the in the early days, we obviously didn't have that. So every time you launch a new location, that was very, very difficult and, uh, you know, added complexity. Now we, we have built a system where, yeah, every additional location doesn't increase complexity, which is quite important, right? If you if you want to grow fast. Um, so uh, so that, of, of course, means, uh, yeah, expanding across um, first Malaysia still and then... Um, uh, South, Southeast Asia. So next market, we are very excited about uh, Indonesia and also uh, after that, the, the Philippines. In terms of just uh, the roadmap, um, 
we I think it's it's super exciting what becomes right now possible in terms of with the use of data, right? Um, currently, we are still we kind of uh, the, how our we call this internal process food engine, yeah, how we develop recipes mm-hmm. is 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 very much uh, kind of a hybrid where we use technology and and uh, so machine and human, right, to develop new recipes, um, which limits a bit the ability of what you can do. So kind of what we're right now working is is to take that to the next step that we can feed much more uh, other dimensions of data into into that system when we we, uh, generate recipes. Um, Think of it as, right, we have like hundreds of different suppliers. um, uh, Each has, you know, hundreds of uh, or thousands of different, uh, you know, items and ingredients and pricing, et cetera. What we kind of, uh, envision is you 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 build a system where where you can put in all of the customer feedback on the one hand right that allows you to develop mm-hmm. very exciting recipe but you can also put in all of the supply side uh, aspects so that, that the system can actually develop a recipe that is not just optimized for taste but also in terms of uh, value for the customer and also the margin profile and profitability based on simply all of the the available um, uh, ingredients and uh, all of the other factors right so that's kind of uh, in terms of the the tech system, what we what we're working on as a as a next step, um, okay. because fundamentally, what we what we what we envision there is that it will open up a completely new type of products and recipes um, that yeah that uh, has potentially has never been able to be done prior to that because there's so much complexity in that it's it's essentially impossible for for humans or even a team of humans to take all of these factors into consideration, right? Um, but sure. technology makes this possible. So, um, yeah, yeah, very putting, putting together an AI model that can actually yeah. ag- kind of connect the dots between supply chain ad- optimization, recipe optimization, and margin optimization, all, all kind of combined uh, the one the one pot. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And then even, you know, how f- different ingredients interact with each other, right? How can you replace certain ingredients to just, uh, you know, be able to uh, make the meal much more affordable for consumers. Sure. So all of these factors. So it's uh, yeah, it's a very exciting um, area. And um, yeah, again, I think food is so important. Actually, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of every every day people just uh, eat kind of casually. Yeah. But uh, I think for most of, uh, of us, it's a very integral part of sure, of sure. your day and has has uh, can be extremely powerful to make okay. people's lives. Okay. Yeah? And what what's what's your favorite meal off of your menu? What's 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 your go-to uh when when you're kind of eating your own uh product? Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. But I think a bunch of um items um I love especially kind of the the more spicy ones. So we have like uh, for instance I am uh, Gipuk which is a bit um yeah, more uh, Malay Indonesian mm-hmm cuisine um dish uh with a fantastic sambal very spicy um so i love that or like the ayam ketchup and also like like really the the very um yeah malaysian flavors um yeah okay okay uh, so yeah. you go so, has there ever been one that you really liked but it would it didn't get a whole lot it didn't get very many customers so it was one of those like you love it but it got canceled uh, yeah, it's unfortunate right now we have like a big discussion on that. So <laughs> we have like a, a fantastic chili pan meal. Um, but uh, we see other meals being much more po- uh, popular, even though this this one gets uh, very, very high ratings. And I love this a lot. Um, yeah, okay. we're currently, it's kind of on the, uh, <laughs> in the discussion if, if we, we uh, have to take this off the menu, which would make me personally very sad. But... <laughs> That's how is, is the is the boss gonna veto the system? That's that's I guess that's that's the that's the question. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have that influence. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very cool. Let, let me wrap up here with with the final closing closing questions that I ask everyone. The the first one is, what is a tech tool that you just cannot live without? Right. <laughs> I th I think it's actually um, it's super simple. I mean, I uh, I still use Evernote. <laughs> yeah. So just okay. to plan my day, um, have a very simple. Uh, a daily to-do list um, you know at the end of the day I can look back okay did I achieve those things and you know sure. hold myself essentially accountable for and then uh, just also just for simple note taking um, yeah I mean I think there are many other alternatives to that so I, I'm not sure if Evernote particularly is, is the most amazing in that but uh, yeah I definitely use that daily um, so Okay. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Once, once you get used to a, a, a tool, you kind of have some stickiness because there's some switching cost to learning a new system, transferring over your notes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, la cool. Last question here. If you were to talk to another startup founder that is just getting started, what would be the biggest piece of advice that you could offer? Yeah. So that's a fantastic question. I think just the, I mean, it's really just uh, you know the the, the YC spirit, right? Uh, talk to talk to users, talk to your customers, and really focus on on what uh, you know. Uh, I think not just what they're saying, but find ways to make sure that what they are saying is is really what they also uh, what, what they believe or what they think, right? So I think there's a fantastic um, book. It's called uh, the the Mom's Test, right? Where it's really about understanding. Um, yeah, or getting real signals from customers uh, to mm -hmm. to understand truly what they um, and what the customer thinks, and not what they say, but they what they really mean. Um, and I think that's that's probably the most important one. Um, yeah, that, that every founder uh, I would I would uh, yeah humbly, uh, advise. Yeah, yeah, definitely need to talk to customers. It's the it's 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 really the only way. Uh, and like you said, not necessarily what they're saying, but what they're thinking, which is. Uh, there's there's uh, some tactics around how to how to delve beneath the surface and and, ext and really extract that. This this has been a super fascinating conversation as we have, as we've navigated how you are integrating tech and data in order to take a, an industry that really hasn't advanced as much as as many others and creating an innovative offering while still controlling price and quality. This has been super interesting. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brockland from Indelible Ventures, and this is The Sea of Startups.